for us to, to touch on. Brian did send me his notes, and so I'm trying to avoid some of the things he may have already covered. And we'll try to do the second portion of chapter one, get into chapter two. If you've looked at the handouts, and if anyone doesn't have the handout, you let me know after this class, and I'll be sure to get you a copy tonight. Um, kind of trying to do a chapter a week, because it made sense. We may not do that, but we'll do the best that we can. So, Ecclesiastes. So some of this background, probably Brian, I think, did give to you like this weird word where it's coming from, kind of coming from the concepts of an assembly or a preacher or a teacher gathering an assembly and saying, hey, I have some things to share with you. That's really based upon how the author refers to himself as kind of the preacher or the teacher. And that word from the Hebrew, or really from the Greek, I guess, being transliterated to us as Ecclesiastes. You probably talked about who wrote it, I imagine. Let's just recap quickly. Technically, literally speaking, this book is authored anonymously, since no personal name is attached to it. Now, we are pretty good detectives. You've probably been into the book already, and you have found clues as to who probably wrote this book, someone who was very wise, someone who was king in Jerusalem, and, and more, more clues throughout the book. And so we generally believe this is Solomon writing this book, and I'm not going to debate that or push back against that. It's worthwhile, I think, going into the book, if you're going to say, Solomon wrote this book, there will be times where you'll have to, um, to think about some things in relation to that. So son of David, king in Jerusalem, someone who was surpassingly wise, someone who had a very prosperous reign. We're checking all the boxes for Solomon here. And so we feel pretty good that Solomon is the author. But there are a few things that might be challenging, and you're going to have to work out, how is this happening? If, if I'm understanding Solomon to be the author of this book, how do I reconcile this? The author talks about several kings preceding him. He's like, he looks back kind of on the history and he says, you know, I've done this more than all, all the kings before me. And so, if, you know, depending how you might interpret what he's saying there, you might say, well, there's only a couple kings before you, Solomon. Maybe a few others if we talk about some of the kings that tried to take the throne and were not anointed. Again, it's not me arguing against Solomon, but there's some things you're going to have to, to, to decide how you reconcile this. He's going to talk at one point in the book about injustice is openly practiced. He just goes out and he just sees injustice in these places. And so you're going to have to reconcile. What exactly is he talking about here? Is he talking about within his own kingdom? Is he talking about he's seeing it somewhere else? He saw it in the past. He's observed firsthand the abuse of royal power. He's seen someone doing this. He's seen the outcome of that. Again, these are the types of things that when we look at the narrative accounts that the scripture gives us about Solomon's life, we're not going to be given a lot of examples here. Now, do we have the complete day-to-day account of Solomon's life in scripture? Of course not. We have very small portions of his life that the Spirit's given to us in the Word, as we do for most individuals uh, that are presented to us in scripture. So, just some things to think about as we approach some of these passages, what might the author be talking about. And ultimately, the book asserts that wisdom comes from the one shepherd. And so we have no problem believing that this is an inspired work 
that this is from the Spirit given to us for our benefit. Ecclesiastes is not quoted directly in the New Testament. And some people might say, like, oh, really? Is that a problem? Not necessarily. There are several books not quoted directly in the New Testament, and yet we will find many, many concepts, many themes often repeated, often reinforced uh, in the New Testament. So quickly, what kind of book is it? I'm trying to go quickly here because I really want to get into some of the, the actual text. This book, in my opinion, is essentially an essay. This book is about an experiment or an analysis, an investigation that the teacher performed, and he is now ready to present his findings to the reader, to the assembly. This is it's a different kind of book. The language is often very practical, very direct. If we are saying, yeah, Solomon wrote this book. I have a little spectrum here of some Solom- Solomon's writings. If you have Song of Solomon, incredibly poetic language, to the point sometimes we read that book and we might wonder, what is this really about? What are my takeaways here? Um, a lot of poetic language there. Proverbs may be a little bit in the middle, a lot of poetry in Proverbs, but it's still pretty quick and snappy, little, little things that take away. And Ecclesiastes is probably more, you're going to find some poetry in this book, but there's a lot of plain where someone is just saying, I did this, here's what I found. Then I did this, and I found this. You will not find the same type often uh, compared to a Song of Solomon when you consider this book. All right, important slide, expectations for our study. Of course, our study will be enriched if everyone's ready to study. Not my goal to hit the microphone more. Not my goal to really teach this as a lecture. I want us to have a, a study together. I know you'll be studying at home in preparation. We'll be able to come together and have some good discussion. Go forth. Um, as we study, consider what wisdom means when the word appears, because I would suggest it doesn't always mean the same thing verse by verse. Sometimes we will talk about knowledge, facts, and the word wisdom will be there. Sometimes we'll talk about practical wisdom, you know, how to be smart with money. Solomon talks about that a lot, how to have a good life here on earth, practical, good, earthly wisdom. And sometimes we will be talking about true spiritual wisdom, which can be very different from practical, earthly wisdom at times. So as we study, consider that. Consider also, as we study, how the Holy Spirit inspired this book. Now, this is not one that you're going to come to a definitive conclusion and then tell us this is how the Holy Spirit did it. But think about exactly how this book was crafted. Is this a book where the Holy Spirit came to the teacher and said, write these words down? Is this a book where the Holy Spirit came to the teacher and said, I have an experiment for you to perform. It's going to take a long time. And then when you're done, write down what you found. Is this a book where the Holy Spirit said, you made a lot of choices in your life, teacher. This is what you were doing, and maybe at the time. This is how, this is how you could reflect on it and then share the knowledge I would like you to share about it. I don't know. We, we don't know a lot about how the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible. But it's worth thinking about because sometimes there will be things said in this book and they will sound odd to you. 
they will sound not like someone you might think is being inspired because they will say things that you're just not ready to hear, perhaps. They'll say it in a way that's more direct or in language that you think that doesn't sound um, very kind or very gentle. And so just consider that. And finally, this is an important one. And this is going to be a hard one. But I believe in you. We will refrain from referencing chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, until the last week of our study. And that is intentional. And it will be hard. There will be times you will want, it will be burning inside you, and you will want to say it. And yet I know that you will try to abide by this. Proverbs tells us the evil man loves rebellion. And I see no evil people here. And so there will be benefit, I think, to this. One, if we want to flip to the end of a book, any book, sometimes we can rob ourselves of what is taking us to the end. We might rob ourselves of a deeper understanding of what we might find in chapter 12. So do what you can to avoid. I'm not even going to say what it says. I heard you got away with it last week, in fact. So that was your one time. Um, Let's try to refrain from this. My AV guy stands ready to turn the mic off if you get too close. So I appreciate you coming with me on that part of the journey. So a key question of this book is found very early. I know you talked about the first few chapters, first few verses in chapter one. But a key, key question to what this whole book is about, in my opinion, is... Right here, chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain? Verses 1 through 11. I think you guys dove into that with Brian. A little bit of a downer. You just read that. By itself, verses 1 through 11. It's not not something you're going to crochet and put in a frame and put in the, the living room, probably. It's not the most uplifting portions of Scripture that you might find. And so we wrestle with, okay, this is... Interesting, but it really is setting the tone for this book. You have the teacher who has conducted this large experiment, series of experiments, both literal, both thought experiments, and he's really kind of giving you the abstract here at the beginning. He's saying, I'm trying to find out what does man gain in this situation, in that situation, when he does this, when he doesn't do this. Is anything gained from that? And if you study this before, the answer oftentimes is no. What does man gain when I do this? Nothing. It was meaningless. It was vanity. It was fruitless. Different, different words your, your um, translations may give you. But this is a key question. This is a really, really important question, not just in this book, but for mankind As a whole, mankind has always wrestled with that question throughout history. We've wrestled with the belief that something is missing. And how am I going to find it? How am I going to get it? I'm unfulfilled in some way. The way I subtitled this class, The Quest for Fulfillment, most people will say like Ecclesiastes, colon, Search for the meaning of life. I tried to be different, but said the same thing, essentially. The quest for fulfillment. Always feeling like something is missing, and is there a way to find what it is so that I will be fulfilled? There's the microphone again. And don't, don't just take my word for it. Consider the temptation in the Garden of Eden. 
all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where we have Adam and Eve in the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and life in the garden, and the serpent in the garden, and Eve is tempted by the fruit. And the serpent says, were you told not to eat this? She says, yeah, you were told not to eat it. Paraphrasing, of course. And the serpent lies to her and says, no, 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 none of that will happen if you eat it. Here's actually what will happen. And then the Holy Spirit takes a moment in Genesis chapter 3 to tell you and me what Eve was thinking in that moment. And Eve thought, it sounds pretty good to be wise, and this looks like a really good piece of fruit to how we understand that she saw it was good to the eye. Something about it was alluring. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that Eve considered this situation and thought to herself, this fruit will give me something I'm missing, maybe a few things I'm missing, wisdom that I don't have, maybe nourishment that I don't have, maybe some type of power, whatever allurement the fruit had. And the Spirit wants us to know that's what went through her mind before she disobeyed and ate that fruit. And this book in many ways, is going to wrestle with those same concepts. What's missing? Is something missing? And if it is, can we go get it on our own? Can we find what might fulfill us? Go forward. Okay, so thank you for letting me do that whirlwind intro to the text quickly. So I think you probably covered 1 through 11 about the vanity of life, what I kind of referred to as this abstract that the preacher gives us, saying, hey, everything is vain, everything is pointless or or worthless or meaningless, depending how we're taking those terms. And then we start to get into verse 12. We really start to, I have up there... the preacher is going to talk about some of his failed experiments. And I use that term, not that the experiment failed, that it didn't come to his conclusion, but he's going to tell you, I tried this, and it, I didn't get what I thought I might get. I tried that, I didn't get what I thought I might get. So in this verse 12, now what is the first thing that the preacher wants us to, what does he present to us initially? After giving us a little bit of his background, identifying who he is, who someone who's in the know would know, I think, who he is. Speak freely. This is a quick one. You don't even have to wait for the microphone on this one, unless you have a, a longer comment. It's personal. It's, uh. yep, it's personal. That's interesting. Yeah, this is not as Solomon has often done in other writings, said, I saw someone doing this. You know, he said, I saw a young man and he's being foulish or he's making a wise choice or not. He said, I, I have, have done this. I've been king over Israel. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Okay, what else notable from this, these few verses here that he's giving to us? You're going you're gonna to get some of that language that I said pretty early on that just doesn't sound like what you might be expecting. Verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. 
That's strongly worded, right? How do we feel about that statement? Okay. Okay, Bruce saying an allusion to the garden here. They're saying, yeah, life is unhappy now because we all remember when it was not unhappy, when it was happy, we made poor choices and there was punishment, there was discipline, there was correction. And so now it's hard and it's unhappy a lot of the time. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, verse, uh, verse 15, the world's messed up and it, and it can't be fixed. Yeah, sounds despondently hopeless a little bit, right? You know, this in some ways reads like, you know, there's not often in the Psalms where you have a Psalm that is very despairing and doesn't have somewhere at the end, but, you know, I know that the Lord is in control and he will do what's right and I'm going to trust him. There is one such that I can't remember. It's in the 80s where it's really just talking about how hard things are. And you get a little bit of this, what's crooked cannot be made straight, what's lacking cannot be counted. This is not the best way to probably encourage your reader to like keep reading your book from like an earthly perspective. You're not selling me very much on this so far that this is, this is exciting. But as we go through, we'll start to see why this is important. I've seen everything that's done under the sun. Behold, all is vanity striving after the wind. Brian told me you guys talked a little bit about vanity. What was kind of the what did you guys discuss what that term could mean or some imagery for that term? <laughs> what picture when you talk about something being vanity? I haven't I haven't used one of the terms we often talk about striving after the wind. Right, things that are vanity are a breath or a vapor. We're getting this this image of something you can't grab, you can't capture, and you can't even see it. Right, it's it's something that you would perceive the wind, and yet if you tried to keep it in any form or catch it, you picture someone with like a big butterfly net, just like running around trying to catch the wind. You would avoid that person and just move on, because it's foolishness. And so, you know, interesting that you know the preacher here saying. That's how much these things I'm about to talk to you about are failing. They are not pretty decent half measures. They are not mostly adequate. They will not get you feeling mostly fulfilled. They are utterly missing the mark here. And he says, I said in my heart, verse 16, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over." Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceive this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. What a favorite Bible verse to quote to your teachers who are trying to get you to do book reports at school. And much wisdom is much vexation. I don't want to, but, you know, kind of that knowledge, this is counterintuitive, right? This is, we're believing this to be Solomon, 
who had wisdom, and it's accounted to him as a great thing. It is a literal gift from the Lord. And you're saying wisdom is problematic, and knowledge is sorrow. How are we reconciling these thoughts right now? Yeah, Mitch. I think, I think a good Uh, you know, he, the first thing that's presented to him, the first problem for him to solve is this, uh, you know, this issue of, okay, whose child is this? Uh, well, his solution is let's cut it in half. And he determines which mother is the true mother from that. But with that, you also get the knowledge of, well, one of those women was willing to sacrifice the child just to be right. And, and that's painful to, to realize and understand that, you know, mankind can, can be that way. That's a, that's a great comment. Tying back to, to some of what Bruce said, right? If we know the world has been subjected to futility, that as we know more about the world and we become wiser about what's going on in the world or we become wiser about how to, to judge righteously, we're going to encounter that futility more often. We're going to see it in more clearly possibly. We're going to just have more and more evidence that this is hard. And that there's a lot of sorrow in that. Any other thoughts on that one there? Yeah, Janita. It's like saying, the old saying, ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss until it's not, and then some other <laughs> terrible thing. But yeah, absolutely, because we can delude ourselves and think everything's fine if, if we choose to do that. But when we know what's going on, often we realize it's not as good as I was pretending that it was. Interesting, again, we talked about Eve. The first thing the preacher would like to say is talk about the vanity of wisdom. And consider back when we were in chapter 3 of Genesis that Eve looked at the fruit and desired it because it had the power to make one wise. And is the first thing the teacher wants to talk about is that accumulating wisdom is not what you think it might be. It is not offering you what you think it might be. Solomon is a, is a fascinating individual to give us a message like this because we as people, we, we know, kind of in quotations, I think, a lot of these things. We know like, money can't buy happiness. We, we'd say that. And we know that just accumulating knowledge won't just make you have a great life. But then we're still tempted just to wonder, though, but like, but is there enough money that maybe there could be? Like, I don't have enough, but... But could there be enough? Or, or but is there a threshold of wisdom I could attain that, you know, no one's just been there yet? And so how, how do we really know that it's not enough? And here you have the wisest man, the wealthiest man. He has exceeded in all these things that we might be tempted to think maybe there is somewhere out, far out, some point where it kind of does turn the corner. And it does make my life have meaning. And here you have Solomon, the, the person that's saying, I've been there. I have been as far out. I have approached the limit in all these ways. And I can speak from experience and in the spirit that it's not what you think it might be. Yeah, Bill. Yeah, I mean, this, not to jump too far ahead, man, but he even comes to that conclusion a little bit in chapter 2, verse 13. And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. So... In the end of chapter 1, he's saying, look, I've looked at all wisdom in the world. 
It's not going to solve all your problems. But 13 verses later, hey, you better go get that wisdom because it's important. So it's, it's not contradictory, but it's, it's saying, look, you, you got to go live life. This is what I think he's saying. Go live life, gain wisdom, gain maturity, but don't think that's going to be the end. You still got to get, you still got to strive that direction, but that's not going to be the, uh, oh, never mind. I was about to say something about chapter 12. Ooh, Sorry. no. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be relieved of microphone duty. If <laughs> yes. That's the thing to avoid, thinking that's the only thing. That's the biggest thing. We've got to do that. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And as we started, I mean, there's different kinds of wisdom, right? We, we know from Solomon or for, from the scriptures talking about Solomon, the things he could talk about. And we, we've seen examples where he could, people would come to him with really tough cases where if you weren't in the room, you don't know whose baby this is. But he's able to use wisdom and figure that out. But then we also know he knew a lot about bees and other things, which is just like pure facts knowledge. And so, you know, it's good to know stuff, probably good to know stuff about bees in some cases, but you're not going to be fulfilled by just gathering facts, gathering, you know, PhDs on the wall and just being like, I'm the foremost expert on this, this, and this. And so it's not everything, and yet there's still value. It's not something he'd say, so... Therefore, forget it. Who cares? It's not going to do anything for you. He is going to be giving us this kind of dual discussion at times that wisdom is not what you think it might be. As like, if you just go down this path, ignore everything else, you will find fulfillment. And yet, you will have a better life if you get wisdom. It will be better than, than not, for sure. So, let's see. Explain the disappointments and understanding of granting great wisdom and knowledge. I think we have covered that. That would have been from last week's questions. I think we've covered that pretty well. So, let's talk about wisdom for a second. I forgot I had this slide. I like this slide. Pat myself on the back. Um, <laughs> wisdom is really important. And there is some, some great, like, snappy wisdom that we can find in the scriptures. And I have some quotes here. I want to know if, if you remember who said these very wise sayings. One who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Really great piece of wisdom, probably the best trash talking in all of the scripture. Do you rem- anyone remember who said this? It's not Goliath. It's, it's our wise friend, King Ahab. 1 Kings chapter 20, when Ben-Hadad, Aram, is coming against him, and they kind of have this banter back and forth before they're getting ready to fight. So pretty wise saying, and yet would we consider Ahab to have proved to be a wise person with what we see about his life? Interesting. How about this one? I like this imagery. Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? I say this to my kids every day. <laughs> Anyone remember this wise, wise man? This, of course, is none other than Bildad, the Shuhite, shortest man in the Bible. Um, no one got that. Only a few of you got that. This height of a shoe? Come on. Um, can papyrus grow where there's no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there's no water? 
Bildad, not someone who the Lord admonishes for being very wise, in this context especially, you know, him saying to Job, you're not prospering because you're a bad guy. Because if you were in the water, if you were doing what was right, your life would be good. That's what he's trying to get that. Now, we, we taking it out of context, we're like, that sounds pretty wise, you know, like plants need water. And, so, and yet Bildad proves himself not to be a wise individual, even though he possesses some form of wisdom. One more here. Uh, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and give it to men coming from who knows where? Very practical wisdom. Oh, Janina knows. She wants to say it. Abigail's husband, yes. Mr. Nabal, who, again, not held up to us as a wise man of Scripture. Yeah, we would just read that and be like, he seems pretty calculating and practical. Good businessman. A lot of servants just leaving their masters. I got I to look after my people. I don't have time to help this guy David running around doing who knows what with, with Philistines in the fields. I don't know. Wisdom, just knowing what is right or what sounds smart or having practical wisdom does not make you a wise person. And, of course, we could even look at Solomon himself who gives us so many wise sayings in the spirit. And yet at times we look at his life and say, you're not acting wise. And so only having savvy and having business sense or having earthly wisdom in some ways, even possessing spiritual wisdom but not applying it, is not enough. And some of these are, are examples of that. We, we cover this one as well. Knowing the teacher is not recommending us to forsake wisdom, what's his point? I think we covered that, that it's not everything, but you still need it in parts of your life. So I'll push forward on this one. How should what Solomon discovered in chapter 2? So now we're, we're kind of turning our thoughts to chapter 2. And we're going to shift away from a little bit of the wisdom thought. So chapter 2, kind of those first several verses, 3 through 11, change the way we think about life and success. As you're pondering that question, it's interesting again that Solomon, the preacher, the inspired teacher here, says, I've talked about wisdom and how it won't fulfill. Now I'm going to talk about pleasure or self-indulgence, things that seem like they would be enjoyable for us. What is the second thought that Eve has after she thinks this fruit has the ability to make me wise and it's also very alluring to my eye? It just looks like something I want to eat. For some reason, this seems like this will make me really happy to eat this fruit. I'll be really wise and I'll be really happy because this looks really good. And it's just interesting that the preacher says, I'm going to talk to you about wisdom and how that's not everything. I'm going to talk to you about pleasure, self-indulgence, and how this is also not everything when it comes to fulfillment. So to that question, how should, how can, what he has discovered in this chapter 2, how can this change the way we think about life and success? Does this change anything for you about life, about success? Absolutely. There's other people doing this all around, and we can see them. 
and their own states of unhappiness, absolutely. Yeah, Janita. Success in this life is temporary. Success in this life is temporary. That's interesting. We'll be visiting that thought again in future weeks for sure. I like that. Again, underscoring, if there was anyone that knew how to probably throw a great party and really, I mean, he says, I said to my heart, I will test you with pleasure. We talked about so, I mean, the resources at his disposal to give himself whatever he wanted that he might think would be enjoyable, would be pleasurable, would offer him escape, would offer him some type of fulfillment. Again, it goes back to us thinking, you know, like, well, oh, you know, like money's not everything, but if I just had enough, I mean, he had it. He had enough, and he determined, he didn't just kind of, he went all in and said, I'm going to test you with pleasure. And he talks about, you know, it's just some of the things he was doing to try to find this. And yet, what's the result? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just fleeting as before. It's vain. It's a vapor again. Again, it's not even, and I was, I was fulfilled for five years but then I saw I just didn't, I didn't plan enough, and so I, I didn't have enough to keep it going. I mean, it was just vain. It just passed, and it wasn't what he thought that it could be. Any other thoughts on this one here? Well, you, you asked the question, what, is it, what does man gain when he does all these things? And he's given that answer. The answer is, I tried to gain everything, and it, when I held it in my hand and looked at it at the end of things, it was like, I just grabbed a handful of wind, and that's done me no good whatsoever. Yep. Showing some mature evaluation of pleasure, right? Because he, he, he attained some pleasure, it's understood, you know, as he talks about these things that he was doing, and that, you know, I, all these things, the, the vineyards I planted for myself, the gardens and fruit trees, and I had pools, and I had servants and possessions, you know, he, imagine he, he it was enjoyed that at some point, the same way we enjoy things that, that divert us, and yet no real value. He's able to say that, that momentary pleasure, when I was able to go to the vineyard and drink from the vineyard, and it tasted wonderful, but, but, but that's not anything. It's not worth even writing down here. The, the, the ultimate value of all that, completely fleeting. So then let's go one more, kind of a, a final turn of thought here, I think, as we're kind of in our last 10 minutes here of chapter 2, and I'm pushing us forward a little bit in the chapter as we're trying to, to go quickly. The vanity of toil. That's a great section if you're ever, if your parents try to make you do chores, you take them here and be like, oh, the vanity of toil. Why are you making me do this? What disappointments are connected with diligent labor? Again, this is a little counterintuitive to what we usually think because we would say work is good. All hard work brings a profit, scriptures would tell us. And so, and yet we hear that hard work or toil can be meaningless or can be unfulfilling or can be vain. What, what's going on here? What disappointments are connected here with diligent labor that you found in this chapter? See, some of those profits will be left to some kid who doesn't know what to do with them. Yeah, so, so that's an interesting point. This is, petty is the wrong word. There's a better word. But the preacher seems to be saying here, it really bothers me when I work really hard and then someone else gets the stuff. Like, I don't get to keep it. 
you know, I, I, I build things or I plant fields. I, I work hard, but I don't get, I only have a temporary, we'll use that term again, possession of kind of the rewards of that. And then it goes to some random. And, and, and that's frustrating to Solomon here. Absolutely. Any other thoughts of some of the, the frustrations that come out of diligent labor? Yeah, Mitch. I think part of it, too, is the, uh, the idea, he says here, uh, legacy. And I think that ties in a lot with, you know, our society, our culture, this idea of, uh, well, I'm, I'm building a business or I'm building something that's going to last. And, and again, Solomon just says, yeah, that, that might work for now, but it'll go to somebody else, like we said. And they may not know what to do with it. They may just destroy it just to do that. Um, you know, Solomon's life is a good example of that as well. He had a great kingdom. It worked out really well. And then it came to his son who split it and lost almost all of it. You know, it, it ran away. So. Great point. And, and you really uncover a, a key thing for us. I think that we've been, we've been talking about already, but you said it well. You know, the legacy. You know, as, as Solomon talks about these things, wisdom, even pleasure, and then hard work. It's as we read and we study, we kind of find it's not just those things that are really the problem. It is how we are looking at those things. You know, what, what is wrong with working hard? You know, hard work can be good. And yet if we're obsessed with the legacy we might be building for ourselves in this hard work, we're going to be left unsatisfied. Even, thing, even having enjoyment and pleasure later in this chapter. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his work. So he will say that it's, pleasure is okay and enjoyment is okay and work is okay and then obviously wisdom is okay. But the lenses that we sometimes look at these things through are really where we start to set ourselves up for failure. I think uh, part of his problem is he has an eye problem. He's, it's all about himself and what's going to fulfill him. He's never thinking about doing anything for anybody else. It's always himself. And I think any time we are focused on I, we're not going to be a happy person. We're not going to be satisfied, and there's going to be nothing that's really going to fulfill us if we're focused on ourselves all the time. So he has an I problem. I think it's really well said. Solomon is, is a difficult person. I think he's a difficult person for us to study because he has some unbelievable uh, chapters about him. We read about his life and some of the things he did and we're just like amazed at his faith and his devotion. And then he will do other things and we frankly we're like I don't know exactly how we got here. I don't know how this man ended up as, as that man over here. And even in this book you know, as we're reading this, that hey, I, I, under, I underwent kind of these big experiments, and we're reading this, and you're naturally, I think, going to be like, I'm not sure you should have done this. I'm not sure, and I, I do not have any, I have no um, reservations, especially in chapter 2, and what we know about Solomon's life, that he pursued sinful things at times. I mean, you can, we read his life. And we know what he did as far as accumulating wives to himself, both for his own purposes, maybe for his political purposes, 
We see the other things he did with idolatry, that he pursued things that he knew were even wrong at times. And so there will be times in this book where we will read this and be like, I don't know exactly how to interpret this right off the bat. Because which Solomon is speaking to me right now? Is this Solomon speaking out of wisdom? Is this remorseful Solomon speaking out of regret? And it could be different chapter to chapter. Kind of in our last few minutes here, um, let's go to this one. Maybe we'll close here with kind of a final thought in chapter 2. I appreciate everyone letting me rapidly toss us through here. There's a bit of a contrast here, finally in verse 24, between these verses and maybe every word of the book up to this point, chapter 1 in its entirety, and finally chapter 2. What contrast do we see here? Great point that he says he brings God into the picture and mentions him as having involvement in some of these decisions and some of these actions. Absolutely. Anything else? Sounds more hopeful. Yes, more hopeful. Yeah, Bruce. He recognizes that it's a gift from God to be able to do that and provide for yourself because God has supplied everything else. He's provided seed and he's uh, provided fruit uh, and an abundance of animals and fish and birds and all those things uh, to surround man while he works. That's a great point. If you had never read the scriptures before, maybe you've never read this book before, you're just sitting down and just reading it, Probably up by verse 23, you, you might be feeling pretty down. And you would be reading like, this sounds hopeless. And you might be wondering like, is my life hopeless actually? What's going on here? And yet, you get some rebalancing here by Solomon saying, it's not all bad. I've been talking pretty severely about certain things and being very direct. But there is good. There is enjoyment. And... God has designed certain things for us to participate in, for us to to enjoy, and for us to partake in. And so you get a little bit of hope here, kind of in this in this chapter that's not fully represented just in the language of the text up to this point. And it's helpful. It's helpful to get to this point because it again, I'm not speaking disrespectfully, hopefully, about the scripture, but it is heavy in these first two chapters, and the Spirit is not pulling any punches through Solomon, talking about the things that we distract ourselves with, how foolish those things are, and yet there are still things that we can redirect ourselves toward. I'm wondering if that was my last question here. The last one, quickly, if anyone has thoughts here they'd like to share, Thoughts and applications that come to your mind from the principle of verse 24. Again, we're talking about there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Adding verse 25. Any closing thoughts anyone had about that verse before we close up and let the other classes come in?
Light under the sun from a worldly pursuit is a striving after wind. Yeah, and, and you see that, you know. But then light under the sun that's given to you from God, the gifts from God that fall within life under the sun, those, those are blessings. Those are things that can be enjoyed in goodness. That's really well said. We open with that first question, you know, the theme maybe of this book, what can man gain? And here we just get a little bit of, of a glimpse as we're saying nothing. He can gain nothing. He can gain nothing. But can he be gifted certain things from outside of himself? This thought first introduced and potentially revisited in future weeks. We will not have class next week because we have our gospel meeting. And so look forward to being back with you in two weeks, and we will tackle chapter three. That's the plan, at least. Thanks, everyone.